Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. All right, guys, let's dive in. We're in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 today. Um, so if you, if you would turn your Bibles there, by the way, if you're new, welcome. My name is Dustin. I'm the pastor teacher here, and we are so glad that you're here to, to worship and, and learn the Word of God with us today. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. We got them in the back there. You feel free to grab one of those. Um, as you turn to Matthew chapter 9, let me review because over the past several months, we've been watching how Matthew, our gospel writer here, he's been revealing Jesus' power through miracles. So if you flip back to chapter 8, we watched Jesus. He healed a man with leprosy. He healed a soldier's servant. And then he also healed Peter's mother-in-law. So we've got three healing miracles back to back to back. And then we learned of Jesus' power and his authority over creation. Remember, he told the, the wind and the waves to stop. And then last Sunday, we learned about Jesus' power and his authority over demons. We had several key points. Let me just point out one thing, and that is Jesus restored those demon-possessed men to three things. Number one, to sanity. Number two, to society. And number three, to service. So in other words, Jesus gave them new life. I mean, one man had 6,000 demons dwelling inside of him. Right? So we don't, we don't know precisely how that works. Um, here's what we do know, and this is probably important for us to learn is that a, a, a non-belief, if, if you are saved, if you have confessed Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that he walked out of his own grave and you've seen proof of that in your life, that Jesus is Lord, it's impossible for you to be demon-possessed. A non-believer, however, if, if, he, if he engages in some type of habitual sin, if he engages in some type of, uh, certainly the occult, we open up ourselves to that, to demon possession, for, these, for these, this demonic activity to take over our bodies. So last week's narrative, it's really important to understand here, demon possession um, focused in on those who are non-Jews, the Gentiles, just like you and me, right? Um, the behavior of that Gentile, of that Gentile man, is ultimately a picture of what we will become if Jesus doesn't take, the, take over as the authority in our life. Because we are born alienated from God. And Jesus casting out those demons is a terrifying, it is a visible picture of His holiness and our sinfulness. Now today, we're going to see really the crescendo 
of all miracles. Matthew has presented really this ascending type of authority, and the authority is, is the forgiveness of sins. Jesus being able to forgive sins, that's the greatest miracle we could ever witness. Um, and today, Matthew paints the picture of what the Jews look like. So last week, it was the Gentiles. Now we have a Jewish picture. So if the, if the Gentiles have no, help, no hope for a healthy life here on earth, if they've got no hope for salvation after we die, what's it, what's it like for the Jews? Well, we're going to meet a new character today. He's a paralyzed man. Uh, Jesus says something to this paralyzed man that is the most important thing anyone could ever hear. What is it? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Let's find out together, friends, if you would please stand now for the reading and the honoring of God's word. All right, so just as we sang those songs as one voice, as a church. Let's do the same thing here with, with Scripture. Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, the, the words are on the, the screen. Please read with me. So he got into a boat, and he crossed over, came to his own town. Just then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, "'Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven.'" At this, some of the scribes said to themselves, he's blaspheming. Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, get up. Take your stretcher and go home. So he got up and he went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck. They gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. Dear friends, these are the, the very words from God. These words are inspired. They are inerrant. They are infallible. And I pray that we hear them as such today. Please pray with me. The psalmist writes, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Oh, Father in heaven, that's, I, I pray that we experience that joy today. For the, for the realization that you have chosen to forgive us of something that we don't deserve. That our sins are forgiven. Father, I pray that that brings a, a joy to our lives no, long, no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord. Maybe we've been walking 20, 30, 40, 50 years with Almighty God. Or maybe we've, we've come to know him within the past year. Regardless, Father, I pray that there is a renewed joy that we never get tired of hearing the gospel that has saved us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Have a seat, guys. Thank you. All right, let's take a look here. Starting in verse 1. 
So he, that's Jesus, he got into the boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own town. So from last week, Jesus and the disciples, they crossed back over the Sea of Galilee from the Decapolis here, right? That's the Gentile region. That's the other side. Those people are scary. They don't dress like us. They don't talk like us. And clearly, the disciples found that out, right? So they went to the other side. Jesus heals two demon-possessed men. After that miracle happens, the townspeople show up and they say, oh, you're, this is too weird. Jesus, you need to go home. You need to leave. Now note this. Jesus, he doesn't stay where he's not wanted. He didn't try to convince them to do something they didn't want to do. Same goes for us today. So Jesus leaves the area. Now, what's really fun about this is that these Gentile people, they don't realize that Jesus is going to be back and he's going to do the miracle of feeding the 4,000. He left a missionary there, the demon-possessed man, to go and preach the good news to them, right? The guy wanted to go with Jesus. Jesus told him, nope, nope, you are saved. You are sane. You need to go home to your family. This man had a family. And I want you to proclaim, he said this, God's mercy. I want you to pro proclaim God's mercy to your family and everyone that you, you meet. So we would say that this guy was on fire. He was on fire for Jesus. He wanted other people to know about the saving truth of Christ. Charles Spurgeon, Chuck, he said this. He said, if you don't wish for others to be saved, then you're not saved yourself. So we know this man got saved. And his life is never, it'll never be the same. Continuing in verse 1, Jesus came to his own town. This town is not Nazareth. Nazareth is where Jesus grew up, but he moved to a much larger town called Capernaum. So that's where we are today. Uh, verse 2, just then some men brought to Jesus, brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. So this story is also told in Mark and Luke here. Matt's version is the shortest of all three accounts. So we have, to, we have to look at Mark and Luke to fill in the gap. So let's do that. Luke chapter 5 says this. One day while Jesus was teaching some Pharisees, notice this now, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law, they were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. Guys, Jerusalem is a three-day walk to Capernaum. Jerusalem is the center of Judaism, right? That's where JTS is located, the Jerusalem Theological Seminary. It's where everybody gets trained. But Luke reveals that not only were Jesus' followers listening to Jesus this day, but so were his enemies, these Pharisees, these scribes, these guys, were, were, they had the PhDs in, in Old Testament theology, right? So why were they there? Why were they listening to Jesus? Well, if you flip back a page to chapter 8, we talked about how, how Jesus healed the leper. After Jesus healed that leper, he told the leper, look, you got to go to Jerusalem, and you got to prove, you got to show yourself clean. So he did that. 
Now keep in mind, no one has ever healed anyone from leprosy. It was very, very apparent when someone was healed from leprosy in the Old Testament, it was God who did the healing. And that's the whole point. Uh, remember that the rabbis, they viewed leprosy as something that could not be healed because man could not overturn God's judgment of sin on that particular person. They, they had the belief that leprosy was always a punishment for someone's sin. So rabbis called lepers, they called them the living dead. Lepers had no hope. So Jesus performs this one-of-a-kind miracle. And what it did is it triggers an investigation by the Jewish Supreme Court. It's called the Sanhedrin. And what Luke reveals here is step one of the investigation. It's called the observation stage. The same kind of uh, investigation happened to John the baptizer as well, if you remember that, when they showed up. Verse 2, back to Matthew. Just then, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Mark says this, when Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. And soon the house where he was staying, it was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. And while he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. And they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. And then they lowered the guy on a mat right down in front of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get to heaven, that's one thing I want to rent. I want to hit play, and I want to see this thing play out. <laughs> I just do. So we're introduced to a paralyzed man. He's got four friends. These four men want to get their friend, maybe it's their brother, maybe one of the men is their father, we don't know, so this, this could be his son. But they want to get this guy, this man that they love, in front of Jesus for healing. But obviously there's a problem. The problem is that there's just wall-to-wall -wall people. Standing room only. And not only is it standing room only, but nobody's going to move for these men. There were no mandatory building codes for wheelchair accessibility here. There were no special care centers. There was no group therapy for the disabled. So in general, paralytics, they were lonely people. They were helpless people. They were hurting. So what are the, what's the options? Well, the options is these guys get there. They're standing outside. They see all these people. Maybe they can even hear Jesus. So option number one is, okay, guys, maybe you just need to wait. Let's just wait until Jesus is, is done teaching. Everybody will go, and then we'll be able to ask him if he will heal our friend. Maybe another option would be, well, if we just send one guy, if we just send one guy, maybe he can weave in and out of that, the traffic, and he can work his way up to the, through the crowd and get in front of Jesus, and maybe, maybe we can ask him if, he will, if he'll heal him. And number three... I got an idea, property damage. <laughs> Let's dismantle the roof. Wouldn't you love to hear that conversation? I, 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 okay, those are great idea, guys. I got another idea. What we need to do, we can't get through the crowd, but let's go, let's go over it. Let's walk on top of the, the, the stairway here, 
and let's just start digging a hole in the roof. And then we're going to lower him down on these ropes right in front of Jesus. Man, that's insane. That sounds like a great plan as long as it's not your home. Most likely, this is Peter's home. It's not Jesus' home. Peter, uh, Jesus didn't have a home. Let me show you this picture. Yeah. So take a look here. This is a rendering of, of uh, what the homes look like in the first century. So you can see there they had an outside staircase that went up to the roof. So um, we've got four men carrying a, a paralyzed man. His paralysis is severe. Um, he may have been a, a quadriplegic. We don't know. Uh, so people who were crippled in the first century, once again, they, they, not, they not only suffered from the physical limitations, but also the social stigma of being crippled. And also the neglect that, that comes with it. But in the Jewish culture, this is what's tragic. In the Jewish culture, it was even worse because they believed that the, the, um, the disability, the disease, the affliction resulted directly from personal sin. The disciples clearly believed this. Jesus clears up that confusion, though, in John chapter 9. Let me show you this. John chapter 9, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, the disciples said, why was this guy born blind. And notice here, they only give him two options. Was it because of his own sins or was it because of his parents' sins? Now, there's no doubt that the paralyzed man believed this as, as well. That's the culture. In, the, in his mind, most likely, his paralysis is a vivid picture of his own sinfulness and God's judgment upon his life. And that may be true. We're going to see that here in a moment. But Jesus showed us that all diseases and all disabilities are not from personal sin. He shows us that in verse 3. Jesus responds. He says, look, guys, it's not because of his sins or his parents' sins. Think about this, what Jesus says. This guy was born blind. Why? So the power of God could be seen inside this man. Wow. Back to Matthew, verse 2. So just then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher, seeing their faith. So Jesus sees their faith. What does that look like? Well, verse 2, the prosperity preachers love this verse. They love it. They say, you know what? If you're not healthy, if you're not wealthy, you don't have enough faith. And then they point to this verse and they say, look, seeing their faith. Just be very, very careful when you start to hear that stuff because we don't want to take Scripture out of context. We don't want to take one verse and base our theology on one verse. God has given us the whole counsel of Almighty God. Um, this same idea was spouted out of the mouths of the friends of Job. Remember that? Job's friends told Job repeatedly, Job, your life has fallen apart because 
you sinned, you haven't confessed sin, or you don't have enough faith. Over and over and over, chapter after chapter. And dear friends, that's just not true. God makes that perfectly clear at the end of the book. And by the way, have you ever wondered why prosperity preachers don't teach the book of Job? (laughs) This is why, right? They can't line their pockets with the truth. They cannot, prosperity preachers cannot extort money from the church by the truth. I pray that you guys hear that today. This is not your best life now. You will have troubles and pain, and God is with you in that trouble and in that pain. The truth is that Jesus healed people with no faith at all. He also healed people with little faith. But somehow and in some way, Jesus, he sees the, the, these, he sees the faith of these five men. Um, some, some pastors and preachers say that the faith... Jesus only saw the faith of the four men. That's not what Scripture says. That's not what the text says. He says he saw their faith, including the the paralytic. So how did Jesus see their faith? (laughs) Well, first and foremost, he, he saw their hearts, didn't he? God saw their hearts. Let me show you a couple examples from the Old Testament. This is so fun. 1 Samuel 16, the Lord doesn't see the way the things that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Kings 8, for you, that's God, for God alone knows each human heart. 1 Chronicles 28, for the Lord searches every heart. He understands the intention of every thought. Jeremiah 17, He says, I, the Lord, I search all the hearts and I examine all the secret motives. One more, Ezekiel 11. He knows, I know every thought that comes into your mind. So so scripture shows how Jesus saw their faith. But here's the other thing, guys. Number two, Jesus saw their actions. Property damage is, you know, says a lot about these guys. It says that they're willing to do whatever it takes to get, G- to get their friend in front of Jesus. I love this. The book of James, James chapter 2. James says, you know, what good is it if you say you have faith, but you, you don't show it by your actions? See, guys, our faith, it propels us to do something with it. Think about some of your heroes. Why are they your heroes? Biblical heroes? Heroes from the past? What makes them a hero to you? I'm guessing that they did something with their faith. They just didn't believe it. They did something. And our faith, it it, it propels us to action in some form or fashion. And guys, if it doesn't, James goes on to say this. He says, faith is dead without good works, meaning you don't have faith. So these men are living out their faith. Look what happens now in verse 2. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic. So Jesus speaks, 
paralyzed man nor his friends say anything. I find that fascinating. Not one gospel writer records any dialogue between Jesus and these five men. Regardless, Jesus con uh, continues here. He says, have courage. Have courage. Now, why would Jesus tell this paralyzed man to have courage? Your translation may say to take heart, to be of good cheer. The idea here, the sense here is to have confidence. He wants, he wants this man to have reassurance. So in other words, Jesus is saying, look, friend, there's nothing to fear. Yes, your buddies just put a hole in the ceiling and, dis, and, and, and disrupted the Bible study, but there's nothing to fear. Now, Jesus is not speaking about some type of fear to where you've got to kind of grit your teeth and you have to overcome it. Now, he's also not speaking of the kind of courage where you've got to muster it up by, by sheer willpower. This is not about your determination. What Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, don't be afraid because you no longer have anything to be afraid of. I want you to have courage. This man did have something to be afraid of in his past. And that's what's on this man's mind, is his past. And Jesus is saying, that's in the past. Have courage right now in this moment. This man's fears, they are real. They are well-founded. Why? Because an unrepentant sinner is separated from God and under divine judgment. But when he repents, he, he no longer has anything to fear. He's no longer under judgment. So here's the picture, right? Jesus sees the faith of the four friends. He knows the heart of the paralyzed man. Jesus obviously sees what, what others can't hear. So this man's pride, this man's self-sufficiency has been crushed. He is literally crippled. He is broken. Scripture talks about a contrite heart. Isaiah 66, 2. Let me give you one example. God says, I will bless those who have a humble and contrite heart and who tremble at my word. And evidently, this paralyzed man has both. When contrite modifies the heart in Scripture, it paints the picture here that a man's conscience has been crushed by the weight of his own guilt and sin. A contrite heart offers no excuses. He doesn't blame others for his sin. So this man is throwing himself upon the mercy of God. He knows full well that he deserves nothing but God's righteous, eternal wrath. And knowing this, he is terrified, he's embarrassed. So Jesus continues to speak these tender words of mercy. Look at this. Verse 2, he says, son, have courage, son. So not only is this a continued term of endearment here, Jesus, as God, he's turning a sinner into a saint. Jesus knows that this guy, he's not, he's not looking for loopholes in the Bible study, right? 
He's not crashing the Bible study to point out Jesus' theological error. He's not chiding. He's not mocking. He truly wants to be there for the right reason. He wants to know the Word of God. He wants to be healed. He wants to be forgiven. And in verse 2, he, he continues. He says, your sins are forgiven. Now, when Jesus says that, what's everybody else thinking? Time out, Jesus. Wait a second. No, 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 no. You, you got it all wrong. He doesn't want his sins forgiven. He wants to be healed. So don't miss this. Key point number one. Jesus is not only the great physician, but more importantly, he's the high priest. Jesus is not only the great physician, but more importantly, he's the, the high priest. And by Jesus being the high priest, he can treat this man's greatest need first. Because Jesus knew that's what he wanted. God... Right? God doesn't forgive people who don't want forgiveness. So by forgiving his sins, Jesus stops the spiritual bleeding and this crushing weight of guilt. I mean, yeah, this man's body, if Jesus were to heal him at this moment, this man's body uh, would be physically healed. It would have saved him a lot of pain. But he still has a problem, doesn't he? He still hasn't been forgiven. His sin debt um, is still there. It still needs to be paid. You ever wonder why the hospitals are so big and our churches are so small? Because we're, we, we're so focused on the here and now, aren't we? The apostle proclaims, I love this, Romans 4. He says, oh... What a joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what a joy for those whose record the Lord has declared is cleared of sin. In other words, the happiest man is the one who knows he's been forgiven. So Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Guys, those are the most beautiful words you'll ever hear. Out of all the miracles in Scripture, this one is the greatest. And it's, and it's the greatest because it costs God the most. You know, we've, we've seen how easy it is for Jesus to heal people. He can do it with a word. He can lay their hands on someone. He tells the the, the creation, the waves, and the, the wind to zip it, and it does. But for Jesus to forgive, cost him everything. Cost him his life. So key point number two, forgiveness of sin is God's greatest gift because it meets man's greatest need. Forgiveness of sin is God's greatest gift because it meets man's greatest need. Nothing else matters. So this, this now, for, right? We've got a forgiven, paralyzed man. He's forgiven. He's, he's looking back up at Jesus. He's still at his feet, right? What's he thinking? 
Whoa, 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 whoa. Did, did you just say? Did you just say what I thought you said? Did you say that I'm forgiven? This, this, this idea of forgiveness. Here's what scripture says about it in the Old Testament. God drives our sins away, right? King David declared this, Psalm 103, that God has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. How sweet is this? The, the Lord is like a father to his children. Jesus just called this man a son. Amazing. He's tender. He's compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. Aren't you glad about that? For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we're only dust. So when Jesus forgave this man, here's what happened. Micah, beautiful word picture here. Micah 7. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. The Apostle Paul proclaims in 1 Timothy, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So all that to say, nobody saw Jesus forgiving this man except the paralytic himself. Because he asked. In his way, he asked God to forgive him. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have. Verse 3, so at this... So Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Verse 3, at this, some of the scribes said to themselves, whoa, 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 he's blaspheming. So not only does Jesus know the hearts and the faith of these five men, he, he also knows the hearts and the, uh, and the minds of these scribes and these Pharisees. Now, at this point, we've heard many pastors and preachers start to rail in on these, pre, on these scribes and these Pharisees. But I, I want to take a time out here. Because scribes were, were scholars, right? They were skilled in interpreting the Old Testament. They were guardians of all the Jewish traditions. And we know this because we've read to the end of the book. But let's, put our, let's just take a time out. Let's put ourselves in their shoes at this moment. Because in Jewish theology, one thing's clear. And everybody knows this in that room. Sin could only be forgiven... When you bring an offering to God, to the temple in Jerusalem. It's called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, big, huge festival. The entire nation fasted, and they dealt with their sin through a blood sacrifice through animals. It was a temporary forgiveness. And everybody in Peter's house knows this. But what's Jesus doing? I mean, there is no sin offering. There's no priest, and there's no temple. I mean, they're in Capernaum. They're not even close to Jerusalem. Jesus is not recognized as a priest. And the paralytic, he didn't, he didn't bring a sacrifice either. So if you were in that room, you probably would have thought the same thing. This guy is blaspheming. If only God can forgive sins, right? And that's what their Hebrew Bible says. Then What's Jesus doing? I mean, the, the Jewish scribes, these, these guys are not the three stooges, all right? They're not bumbling idiots. They know the Old Testament. They were off in their interpretation. But they knew that if God alone can forgive sin, 
then Jesus was doing one of two things here. Number one, he's either claiming to be God, or number two, he is guilty of blasphemy. Brings us to key point number three, blasphemy. Blasphemy is, it's any action or word that disrespects God. Blasphemy is any action or word that disrespects God. So the scribes did what most of us would have done. They would have thought, okay, Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. Now, today we sit here and we go, blasphemy? Who cares? So what? It's a big deal. What's the big deal about blasphemy? Well, we hear people commit the sin of blasphemy um, multiple times every single day in our culture. And make no doubt about it, blasphemy is sin. By the way, blasphemy is number three on God's top ten list. The Ten Commandments. So God's not going to tolerate being disrespected. He will not tolerate that. And yet we as a culture, we hardly blink when the majesty of God is insulted. From OMG to taking Jesus Christ, the name above all names, in vain. The big deal is this, according to God, this is a capital offense, blasphemy. Meaning, someone does this, someone disrespects God, you get the death sentence. And here's the thing, if Jesus is a blasphemer, then he must die. That's what the law says. Everybody's still under the law here. So Jesus clearly acts with the authority that only belongs to God by saying, your sins are forgiven. So back to the paralytic, right? He's still lying at Jesus' feet as this, this whole thing's going on. This reminds me of the demon-possessed men from last week. They were sitting and they were bowing at Jesus' feet. He reminds me of the woman who washed Jesus' feet. Remember that in Luke chapter 7? Let me show this to you. This is amazing. When a certain, look at this, immoral woman, not just a woman, an immoral woman, from that city heard that Jesus was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. She knelt behind Jesus at his feet. And she's weeping. Why is she weeping? Because of her past, just like the paralytic. Her tears fell on Jesus' feet, and then she wiped them with her hair. And then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. The paralytic at Jesus' feet reminds me of, of Jairus in Mark 5. Jairus, he came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. So Jesus now addresses the scribes. Verse 4, perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said this, Hey guys, why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? So we got a, a paralytic who is elated that his sins are forgiven, and we've got the scribes who are offended. So the question becomes, now time out. Can, can Jesus blaspheme and save simultaneously? Can he do that? The answer is no. You've you, you got to have one or the other, right? So Jesus replies to their question. 
and he asks a question of his own. He says, why are you guys thinking evil, <laughs> evil thoughts in your mind? The answer is very simple. Evil men think evil things. It goes all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 6, 5. Right before the flood, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw, look at this. He saw that everything that they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So question, has anything changed? Time changes nothing because God's standards never change. So back to our text here in verse 4, Jesus says, why are you guys thinking evil things in your hearts? So the, the irony is, is quite thick here. If you were a scribe, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think, uh-oh, I would think, uh-oh, this, this guy can read my thoughts, he can know my mind. The irony is this, the scribes accused Jesus of the sin of, blasph of blasphemy, but in fact, they're the ones guilty of it. So Jesus presses in here in verse 5, he says, okay, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. Now think about this. Both statements are easy for anyone to say, right? Only one is provable. If someone says your sins are forgiven, how do you know? What proof do you have? But when Jesus says, get up and walk, ah, now we got proof. So here's the thing, the scribes and the Pharisees, they never discounted Jesus' miracles. They, they, they never denied them. They, they admit all of them to be true except the resurrection. So Jesus has this miraculous resume before them, and it's almost as if Jesus says, why do you guys think that this is impossible for me? Once again... Scribes are smart guys. They know that sin and disease are inseparable. They know Genesis 3. They know that, that this is how it all started. So Jesus continues in verse 6. He says, but so that you may know. Okay, so the, here's the proof. So that you, you guys can know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and it's almost like he takes a look. And he looks at the paralytic and he says, get up, take your stretcher, go home. Here we see Jesus give uh, the scribes another clue to his identity. He calls himself the son of man. That's his favorite title for himself. It comes from the Old Testament prophet Daniel. So in other words, what Jesus is saying specifically to the scribes and the Pharisees is that I'm the king. All right, I'm the king with all divine authority on the earth. I'm the king, and there's no need for a temple on the earth. I'm the, I'm the king. There's, no, there, there's not going to be a need for a sacrificial system on the earth. I'm the king. There's no longer need for a priesthood on the earth. Son of man now has the authority on earth to forgive sins, guys. That's why I'm here, to forgive your sin. So Jesus says, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. Now, at this point, I'm guessing you could have heard a pin drop 
right? If this were a, a, a reality TV show, the suspenseful music comes into play, right? We'd have to go to a commercial break. Why? Because if this man stands up, Jesus is God. And he does have the authority to forgive sins. If this man does not stand up, he is a blasphemer who must be put to death. So picture it. The disciples, what are they doing? Man, their eyes must be this big. They got a lump in their throat. The scribes, they got a scowl on their face. Eternity hangs in the balance. And all eyes are on this forgiven, paralyzed man. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? Verse 7. Matthew is so underrated. He got up and went home. Thanks, Matt. Man, you talk about an understatement. I don't know about you guys. I, I read this story along with Mark and Luke, and I, I tend to use my, my sanctified imagination. I picture this man getting up and saying, I knew it! I knew it! And maybe he goes over to the scribes and he says, In your face! Can you imagine? Can you imagine? This guy not only got his sins forgiven, but he is healed. Unbelievable. Okay, that's probably not what happened. Luke does say this, though. Immediately as everyone watched, the man jumped up, he picked up his mat, and he went home praising God. Now, can you imagine the reaction of his, his, his friends and his family that are still on the roof? I mean, they're, they're jumping up and down, falling to their knees, praising God. Can you imagine that moment? They knew that Jesus could do it, and he did it. He did it. Now, this man couldn't get through the crowd to get saved or to get in front of Jesus, but you can bet people made an aisle for him as he left. Like the parting of the Red Sea. Verse 8, when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck. Notice that we have the reaction of the crowds, but not the scribes. The crowd was awestruck. Your translation may say, filled with awe. Maybe they were afraid, uh, marveled, or fear. The crowd is both fearful and reverent. And then verse 8 continues, they gave glory to God. Now that sounds like a good thing until we realize that this, this glory is superficial. Um, they, they glorified God. It doesn't mean that they recognize Jesus as who, you know, his true identity, who he is. They didn't recognize him as the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Really, it's tragically sad. What about the scribes? Well, we learn from other parts of the Gospels that most of the scribes and the Pharisees, they never believed that Jesus was God. They never believed that he was Savior. These men saw no need 
to ask for forgiveness because they considered themselves already righteous. Um, the scribes and the Pharisees resented Jesus offering forgiveness because they thought that everyone else needs to be like them. They have to earn it. And verse 8 uh, concludes here, they gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. Notice here the crowd's theology is wrong. God didn't give this authority to men. He only gave it to one man, the God-man, God's son. Only he has the authority to forgive sins. So the title of today's sermon, Nothing Else Matters. Subtitle, The Forgiveness of Your Sins. The Forgiveness of Your Sins. Nothing Else Matters. It's a very personal title. Last week, we had two groups of people. We had the demonized men who were saved and sane. We had the townspeople who didn't want Jesus at all. And I asked you, what, uh, what group were you in last week? Today, we also have two groups. We have those who believe. We have a paralyzed man and his friends who believe. And then we have the scribes who don't. So once again, let me ask you, what group are you in? If you're free, if you're forgiven from the bondage of sin because of Jesus Christ, praise God. Praise God. And I pray that you're doing something with your faith. I pray that you're, you're living it out. If you're new with us, our, our mission statement is that we would experience God verse by verse. And that's what we've just done this morning. But it doesn't stop there. Our vision statement is that you would share Jesus day by day. This Jesus. So dear friends, I pray that you're doing something with your faith. The second group, the scribes. Maybe, maybe you don't believe today that Jesus is God. Maybe you believe something else completely. Regardless, we're glad you're here. We're glad that you're with us. Please know this, the scribes believed that they could get to heaven based on their good works. If you would ask them if they were good people, they would say, oh yeah, I'm a good person. I would a good person. And let me just ask you, if you're visiting with us today, are you a good person? Are you? The interesting thing about the Old Testament is that there's a whole bunch of laws in it. 613, to be exact. Took me a long time to count that. <laughs> Not really. Um, but what the law does, guys, is it reveals our sin. So God gave us the Ten Commandments for a reason, right? So if... if one of the standards is, are we morally pure when we look at the, the Ten Commandments? And one of the laws is that we're not supposed to lie to people. So let me just ask you, have you ever lied? Yes. Yeah, one person that's honest in church today. Thank you, brother. 
Have you told more than one lie? Well, of course, we're all humans. Of course, right? So what's that make us? It makes us liars. So let me ask you seriously now. Are you still a good person? Well, Dustin, I, you know, I'm working on my lying. That was in the past. I'm trying to be a better person now. Here's the thing, guys. That, that's, that's not going to go over with God. It, it's not even going to go over in a human court here. If you're, if you're in a, uh, a trial and you've got a bunch of speeding tickets and the judge says, hey, you got a bunch of speeding tickets here. Well, here, listen, judge, that was in the past. I'm trying to be a better person. I'm not speeding anymore. What's the judge going to say? He's going to say, tough. You broke the law in the past. You are guilty. You have to pay these fines. Have you ever stolen anything? That's on God's top 10 list too. What do you call somebody who steals? A thief. The problem, though, is that you just admitted that you're, you're a lying thief now. <laughs> right? Are you still a good person? Only by the grace of God, right. But for those who don't believe and who, who, who don't think that they... Well, God's going to wink at my sin. Yes, I've lied in the past. Yes, I've stolen in the past. Yes, I've committed adultery in the past. Yes, I've done X, Y, and Z. But God's a God of forgiveness and he's a God of love. And he is. But dear friend, please hear me. There is nothing more important than the forgiveness of your sin. And you cannot get there on your own merit. You cannot do it. That's what the scribes did. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what all other religions teach. That somehow, some way, that you have the capacity to be perfect. Are you perfect? No. And that's why God sent his son to be born of a virgin. You ever wondered about that? Why? God bypassed human sin. He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. And then he had the audacity to walk out of his grave. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. He is the perfect man. And that's why the bloody cross and the empty grave are so important. So no matter where you are with Jesus today, guys, I pray that you think about that. I pray that you do some business with him. If God is calling you right now to confess your sins, do it. Pri silently, privately, because we're getting ready to, to um, celebrate the Lord's Supper. And for those of you who are brothers and sisters in Christ, we're, we're, we're going to do that together. If you've got questions on this, please come see me. We've got a prayer room. We want to make sure that your, your questions, spiritual questions are answered, because no joke, this is the most important statement you could ever hear from the Lord Jesus, that your sins are forgiven. Father in heaven, you are so good to us to give us your son to forgive our sins, 
to give us mercy, to offer grace. We don't deserve any of those things. And yet you chose and you choose to continually give them to us. For those of us, Lord God, who have been walking with you for a long time, I pray that we're paying attention. I pray that we're living out our faith. I pray, Lord, that we're, we're walking in step with you. And if, if we're not, that we would confess our sins right now before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We can't have anything between us. For those of us, Lord God, who just don't know, Lord, may we remember your words of forgiveness, kindness, that you have given us a way. You didn't have to give us one way, and yet you did. Father, I pray for the Verde Valley. I pray for those who have no hope today that you would use us as the church to give them hope. I pray that we as the church do our job and share in Jesus day by day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.